0: Now, as we come back to the prophet of Joel, it may not look very important. Actually, only three chapters, and very brief. You might get the impression, well, he doesn't seem to be a very important prophet to begin with. We know practically nothing about him, and not quite clear as just the time that he wrote. His name means Jehovah is God. And by the way, it was a very common name in that day. In fact, there have been some that have felt that the one who wrote this was a son of Samuel, because it says back in 1 Samuel 8, 2, it came to pass when Samuel was old and he made his sons judges over Israel. Now, the name of his firstborn was Joel. And it's caused some to jump to the conclusion that This was the one. But if you'd read on down, you'd find out that it says in verse 3 of chapter 8 of 1 Samuel, "...and his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, and took bribes, and perverted judgment." So we're not talking about the Joel who wrote this book here. It was a common name. Now, we can know just a little about where he prophesied, And we're sure that he was in Jerusalem, and the Jerusalem area, he refers again and again to the house of the Lord. For instance, verse 9, he says the meal offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord. And he mentions Jerusalem in verse 20 of chapter 3, But Judah shall dwell forever in Jerusalem from generation to generation. And back in verse 17 of chapter 3, he mentions, So shall ye know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion. And all of this makes us know that this man was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah. And he apparently prophesied as one of the early prophets. Actually, there were quite a few prophets, at least 50 prophets. And he evidently prophesied, as it's generally conceded by conservative scholars, about the time of the reign of Joash, king of Judah. And that would mean that he would probably know Elijah and Elisha. And he is one of the first prophets to prophesy. Now, his theme, and it occurs about, I think I've marked six times, that he makes reference to the day of the Lord. And he evidently was the first of the writing prophets. Now, that ought to tell us something. You remember that we've already seen that Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel and Daniel all refer to the day of the Lord. Fact of the matter is, they call it sometime that day, that day. And we're going to find Zechariah more or less majors in that day, that day. What is that day? It's the day of the Lord, or the day of Jehovah. And Joel is the one who introduces it. Yonder from the mountaintop of prophecy, this man looked down through the centuries and saw Father... Than any other prophet saw, and he saw the day of the Lord. Now, this is an expression that's freighted with meaning, and it not only includes the millennial kingdom that will come at the second coming of Christ, but Joel is going to make it very clear to us that it begins with the great tribulation period, a time of great trouble. And he's going to deal with that. And it means, very frankly, that this expression, the day of the Lord, is a technical expression. And it encompasses and includes that period that begins with the great tribulation and it continues on, I think, into eternity. But we can put down, if you want a boundary, or parenthesis at the end, the end of the millennium. And when he puts down then all unrighteousness, the final rebellion, and then he establishes his kingdom here upon the earth, the eternal kingdom that will continue throughout eternity. So that the day of the Lord is very important. Now, it's peculiar to the prophets of the Old Testament. And it is an Old Testament expression. It does not include the period that the church is in the world, because none of these prophets spoke about the church. They never spoke about a period that a group of people would be called out from among the Gentiles and from, actually, the nation Israel and the tribes of the earth, and all be brought in one great body Call the church, and that that church would be raptured, and that's a good scriptural term, and taken out of this world. Now, James, the one that we've just been looking at, at the great council of Jerusalem in the 15th chapter of Acts, he more or less outlined this period. He says here, beginning at verse 14 in Acts 15, "...Simeon hath declared..." how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to this agree the words of the prophets as it's written. Now, notice this. After this, I will return and build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up. After this, after what? After he calls out the church in the world, God again will turn to this program. And the day of the Lord now refers to this. And he goes on in verse 17, "...that the residue of man might seek after the Lord, and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things." Now, today he's calling out of the Gentiles a people. And in that day, it's to all the Gentiles that'll be entering the kingdom in that day. And I think there'll be a tremendous turning to God at that time, which the church has never witnessed, nor will it witness. Now, somebody said, why is God following this program? Well, let me read verse 18 of the 15th of Acts. James says this, "...known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world." And don't ask me the question, ask God, because I don't know, and nobody else knows. Somebody says, why is God following this program? Because it's His program, it's His universe, He's not responsible to you. God doesn't turn in a report to you and to me at the end of the week to tell us what He's been doing and to get Him approved. God's program will never be investigated by a Senate committee. It will never come in under the inspection of the FBI. And anything God's doing will never be decided by the Supreme Court of the United States or any ruler on top side of the earth there ever has been known under God or all his ways. And he's doing it this way because this is the way he wants to do it. And friends, all I can say is, it's just too bad if you and I don't like it, because after all, we're just creatures down here in this world. Now, the day of the Lord is very prominent in the little prophecy of Joel. In three chapters, it occurs six times, average two times a chapter. So that's the great theme that we have here in this book. Now, there's something else that we're going to find here that makes this a remarkable prophecy. Not only was he the first writing prophet to look down through the centuries and see the day of the Lord coming. I don't think that he saw the church at all. I don't think that he includes that at all. And the other prophets didn't either. And when the Lord Jesus went yonder to the top of the mountain, these men who were schooled in the Old Testament came and said, what is the sign of the end of the age? Our Lord did not mention His cross to him at that time. He didn't tell him about the coming of the Holy Spirit at that time. He didn't tell them about the church period that was coming. He didn't even mention the rapture to them. And in the Olivet Discourse, that has no rapture in it at all. He went way down to the beginning of the day of the Lord, and He dated it. But it's not on your calendar or mine, but it'll be for the people that'll be there when the day of the Lord begins. And it begins like this. This is the way he identified. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, then you'll know that's the beginning of the day of the Lord. And Joel will make it clear to us that it begins with night. It begins as a time of trouble. And after all, the Hebrew day always began at sunset. My day begins in the morning. The Hebrew day the evening and the morning were the first day, God says. He begins at sundown. We begin at sunup. Some of us don't get up till the sun's been up quite a while. But the point is that the day of the Lord begins like that. Now, that makes it important. But there's something that's remarkable here. Did you know that Joel, he's not like Hosea that we saw in the last prophet that we studied? He says practically nothing about himself. And we know practically nothing about it. Why, Hosea, we even found out about the scandal that went on in home, that he had an unfaithful wife. I don't know whether Joel had an unfaithful wife or not. Don't even know whether the man was married or not. All I know is this. The first verse gives us all that we ought to know. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Bethuel. And he does not condemn Israel for idolatry. I don't think at this particular time idolatry was the great sin here at the very beginning. He'll only mention one sin that the other prophets mentioned. His is altogether different. And he begins with a description of a literal plague of locusts. And then he uses that plague of locusts to compare with the future judgments that are coming upon this earth. And this first chapter is a dramatic and literary gem. In literature, you'd find nothing that's quite like this. It is a remarkable passage of Scripture. Now, there's something else here that's very controversial, even today. And I'm sorry, I had to step in on the toes of some of my Pentecostal friends, and I rejoice that we agree on so much that the little we disagree on, that we ought not to cause that to divide us, and I hope it won't. But we have here in Joel again, and I never get around to these very often, and maybe some of you very fine Pentecostal preachers who listen to the program, you tell me that you do. You're writing the lovely letters. Maybe you want to warn your people now not to listen to this poor preacher here in Joel because this is the prophet who mentioned the outpouring of the Holy Spirit which was referred to by Peter on the day of Pentecost. And there's a difference of interpretation of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to be looking at that when we get to it. And I'm going through the Bible. And as many of you know, I face every issue when we meet it head-on, and I give what I believe is the interpretation. I could be wrong. I found out I was wrong one time, you remember, not long ago. And so I could be wrong, but I'm going to tell you what I believe that the Word of God means. And as one man wrote, he says, I disagree with you violently. He's a Pentecostal preacher on the second chapter of Acts, and on 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. But he said to me, he says, I want to say this, although I disagree with you violently there, I sure agree with you on the rest of the Bible. And I want to say that as long as we can agree on so much, we don't have to touch down on all four corners. There's bound to be some disagreement, and I could be wrong. But friends, don't think I am. (laughs) So we'll begin Joel. Now let me move down a little farther here and give just a brief outline of it today. We have in chapter 1 through the first 14 verses a literal and local plague of locusts. Not only is it literal, but it was a local one, not one down in Egypt. And then the second division is looking to the day of the Lord, and he gives us the prelude to it. And that is chapter 1, verse 15, through chapter 2. And then looking at the day of the Lord, postlude. The other was a prelude to it. Now the postlude, looking back. And that's chapter 3. Now we find in this passage of Scripture here that we have, first of all, a literal and local plague of locusts. And this is very important for us to see. So today I'm going to have a chance to get my foot in the door. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, if you still think that Joel is the son of Samuel, and it couldn't be because Samuel's sons were very wicked, by the way, and this Joel certainly is not. But this boy's father was named Pethuel and not Samuel. And there's quite a difference in those two names. Bethuel was not what I would call a common name, but Joel is a common name, and there were many that were named that in Old Testament times. Now, will you listen to him here? He says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Now, they're in the midst, apparently, at this time, of this great locust plague. And he calls up the old man, and he says, "...did anything like this ever happen in your day? Did it happen in the day of your fathers? Was it ever handed down to you?" And that locust plagues were rather commonplace in that land, and still are, by the way. But he says, Have you ever heard anything like this locust play? And, of course, they have to say, No, this is the worst we've ever had. And the trouble about those of us that are older, we begin to, I think, get grandiose ideas. We begin to look back at the past, and if some young person comes along and says to us, Say, we just had a wonderful meeting over at our church, we like to say... Well, now, that's wonderful. That's a great meeting. But now, when I was a young fella, we had a meeting back in my home down, and it was about twice as good as the one that you were having. I used to hear that as a young preacher. Now, this man, Joel, says, you old men, you never heard of anything like this. And they had to agree. Now, notice again, he says, tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Now, he says, you can pass this on down. You tell your children about this plague, and then have them tell their children, because there's not going to be a plague of locusts like this. Does that remind you of anything? When the Lord Jesus Christ, in the Olivet Discourse, in the 24th of Matthew, when he identified this period that he himself called the great tribulation period, this is one of the things that he said about it. He said that there'd been nothing like it before, and there was going to be nothing like it afterward. Now, my friend, that more or less puts a parenthesis around it in time and slips it into the slot of history as being unique. There's nobody during the great tribulation that'll be able to say, Say, this reminds me of when I was a young fellow. We had a time of trouble. Now, we've never had a period like that yet. That's the reason we're not in the Great Tribulation day. We have never been in it yet, because any particular period that you could put your finger down on, you could put your finger down on another period that would match it. And the Lord Jesus made it, very clear, he says in verse 21 of chapter 24 of Matthew, "...for then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world, to this time no, nor ever shall be." And when people get in the great tribulation, there'll be none of this question in that you hear today. Do you think that we went through the great tribulation during World War II? Or do you think that the Great Depression was the Great Tribulation? Or you think today that all this turmoil is the Great Tribulation? And the answer is very easy to come by. All you have to do is to turn to the words of the Lord Jesus. He says, there's nothing like it in the past. Well, we've had times like this in the past. And they can all be duplicated. And I have a notion that what we're in today is going to get worse, not better so that it couldn't be said that there's going to be nothing like it in the future. Now, that's exactly what Joel is saying concerning a locust plague. Then he will, in a very dramatic way then, say, look, this locust plague is unique. Nothing like it. But you can be sure of one thing. There's coming a day when there'll be another period with a different label, the day of the Lord. He calls it, Our Lord pulled it out from the millennium, and he said, it's the great tribulation, period. And that's the way the great day of the Lord opened. I wish today that these folk that try to want to dismiss the fact that the church is going to leave before the great tribulation, and that the great tribulation is going to be a frightful time on this earth, horrible beyond description, that's coming on the earth. And then Christ comes and establishes His kingdom. These people that deny it, I wish they would study the total Word of God. Just don't lift out a few verses. A man wrote me the other day, and he had four or five nice little cliché verses that are used by a certain interpretation of Scripture. I'm not impressed. Take the total Word of God. Go through the Word of God. Now, This plague stands alone as being different than any other plague that took place. Now, the plague of locusts in the land of Egypt was actually a miraculous plague, I believe. God's judgment's there. This is what man would call today just that which is natural. That is, it just took place. Actually, I do not consider it even here a judgment of God. Upon the people, although it was used as that. And I believe that it being unique was, in that sense, a judgment from God. Now he's going to speak of this locust plague. And there are several things that we need to recognize about the locusts. We don't know too much about them here. I know as a boy, always enjoyed in a summer evening flying on my bed before an open window and listening to the locusts in the trees. But they never were a plague, and they probably were not the same kind of a locust that you have in Bible times or you have over there today. Now, I have before me an article that appeared in the National Geographic several years ago. And it tells about a plague of locusts in Africa. And they show pictures of the locusts and what happened, a field before and a field afterward. And they absolutely had a scorched earth policy. It was just as if a fire had burned over the field and destroyed everything. And speaking of this one, they have by a picture this explanation. Battle is lost. But the loser fights on. Nasirajah Jemi, an Ethiopian farmer, swats at locusts devouring his millet crop. Only a few kernels remain on the seed stalks. Stalks and leaves go next. In 1958, Ethiopia alone lost 167,000 tons of grain Enough to feed more than a million of her people for a year, and all by a locust plague, he's going now to describe this locust plague for us and there's some things about a locust plague that I think we need to keep in mind, and the Word of God has something to say about the locust. I'm not going to turn there are many passages on it, but proverbs thirty twenty seven has this very interesting piece of information. The locusts have no king, yet go they forth, all of them by bands. Now, they march as an army, and they're divided into different bands as they go along. Now, that's going to explain something to us now when we come to verse 4. Now, will you notice what it says? That which the palmer worm hath left hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left hath the caterpillar eaten. Now, these are different words. It's true. And there are those that believe that it refers to different types of insects. But there's no basis really for that. The poma worm actually means to gnaw off. And the word locust here, Arbaid, it means that there are many of them, like an arm, in they're migratory. They move as a great swarm. And then the cankerworm means just to lick off, and the caterpillar means to devour or to consume. So that you have four words that describe the locust and what he does. Now he goes forth, the psalmist says, in bands. Just like an army, first of all, there are the planes that come over and drop the bombs. And that first onslaught of the locusts, they come through the air, and they actually can denude a tree in just a matter of minutes. And then after the bombs have been dropped by the air corps, then the artillery comes through, and it destroys every section and leaves great areas... Devastated, But there's still a lot left. Now the infantry comes along. That's the third group. And they get what has been left. And then you have the mop-up crew that follows after that. And if there's anything left, they're going to get it. And I would say they get less than anyone else. And many of them drop by the wayside. So what you actually have here, you have four words that describe the different bands of the locusts, and that they come just like an army, they have no general, they have no king, they have no lieutenants or sergeants, but they move just like an army. And back, well, for 250 years, the island of Cyprus was stripped by locusts. Now, actually, the Israelite was permitted to eat locusts. Back in, I'm not going to turn to the passage, but back in Leviticus 11:22. And they were sent as a judgment from God. But we would put this one in the category of a natural one, and there's nothing like it that they had ever had. I think it was not necessarily a judgment, but a warning to the people. It was a warning to the nation. This is your first writing prophet, the time of Elijah. And Elijah was warning the northern kingdom. And now this man, in a most dramatic manner, Joel is warning the southern kingdom of a judgment that's coming. And he will move from the local judgment. And this has been the method of all the prophets to move from the local situation into the future. And he'll move it to the day that is coming, the day of the Lord. Now, I do not know that we'll have time today to get to the day of the Lord. I want to give one whole broadcast to that, one of the most misunderstood terms, and yet one of the most important in Scripture. Joel was the first to use it, and he makes it very clear what it is, so that after him, all that the other prophets did, all they had to do was mention it, and they could just call it that day, that day that's coming. And we'll see that a little later on. Now, there's something else that you have here, and I trust that you folk that above the Mason-Dixon line will forgive me for saying this, but this, my friend, was like Sherman's march through Georgia when a locust plague came. They took everything in sight, and it was a scorched-earth policy, denuding everything along the route. Now, may I say to you, As we're going to see later on, this moves into the day of the Lord that begins with the great tribulation period. And I'm running ahead now, of course. But how does the great tribulation period open? It opens with the four horsemen of the apocalypse. A false peace, then war that breaks out, and then after that, there comes the famine, and then there comes the dread horse of death, the pale horse of death. So that you have four here, and I see a tremendous parallel. Because during the great tribulation period, it'll not be literal locusts; It'll be something lots worse that's going to ride through not just that land, but through the entire world, and the world will be totally devastated when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to the earth to set up his kingdom. That makes this prophecy very remarkable. Now, we've seen that we have four different classes of the locus. And by the way, I should say something else. And somebody's rebuked me for using that term, by the way. And they won't know what I mean by it. Well, it's an idiomatic expression that I use when I'm generally changing the subject or backing up and picking up something that I should have said before. And here, I should have said this before. Now, locus when you look at them close up, look like a horse. In fact, the German word for locust is hay horse. They look like a horseman. And you have that in the book of Revelation, those horsemen like locusts. And they are unusual locusts, by the way, different. And I said that again. You'll forgive me for using it. It's merely a slang expression. And I trust that you understand I'm not reading a nice little essay here. I'm speaking from the Word of God that I have before me, and my notes that I hope you have, and that's all I have before me. And I try to teach from my heart as well as my mind. And some think that I have very little mind in it, but nevertheless, that's what we're trying to do. Now, let me move on down. He says in verse 5, "...awake, ye drunkards, and weep and wail, all ye drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it's cut off from your mouth." Why? Well, the locusts beat you to the grapes, and they have stripped all the vineyards, and there'll be no more wine for the drunkards. Well, a man that was an alcoholic in that day, He's going to find himself taking the cure before he intended to, because there'll be no wine to drink. Now, it reveals that even here at the beginning of the downfall of the nation, what was the great sin? It was, again, drunkenness. And we here in Southern California are being reminded again that Most of the accidents that take place today, recently, there have been some horrible ones. One where an entire family was, all of them killed in their car, out on a holiday, out to have a good time, and because some fellow's exercising his freedom and his right to drink, and he's drunk, and he goes right head-on into this family car. Now, May I say to you, I'll get lettuce, I know on this, that you're moving into the realm of politics. My friend, I'm studying the Word of God, and when it talks about drunkenness, I'm going to talk about drunkenness, because that is what God is saying. And when he talks about the king being a drunkard, then I'm going to talk about drunkenness in Washington today, because it happens to be there and it looks like some commentator made the statement about, I think it is was 128 cocktail parties there every day. And he says that many of the statesmen become inebriated. And he says the decisions that are being handed down look as if it's coming from men that are probably not in their right mind, by the way. Awake, ye drunkards, he says, and weep and wail. Drunkenness was beginning to... Tear the foundation out of this nation at the very beginning. And by the way, that's the only sin that Joel will mention. He doesn't mention idolatry at all. The great sin that brought the nation down of turning from God, because they still made a profession of worshiping him, you know. Now, he says here, verse 6, and this is such a dramatic section, "...for a nation is come up upon my land strong." "...and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion." Now, these little bitty insects, the locusts, why, he can tear a tree down. He can move through a field of grain and absolutely have nothing left but the bare ground. And you have these four bands coming along. No leader, no king, but here they come. And... They come, in most cases, as a judgment from God. But as we've tried to say here, this was a warning to these people. And he'll move ahead to that which is still future, the day of the Lord, will be just like a locust plague upon the earth. The four horsemen of the apocalypse are yet to ride. Now, will you notice that the locusts here are compared to an invading army? And they were just as destructive, and that's exactly what they were. Now, listen to him here in verse 7. He says, He hath laid my vine waste. He's barked my fig tree. Now, that means they actually kill a fig tree. He hath made it completely bare and cast it away. Its branches are made white, just absolutely stripped a fig tree down, even to the bark, and nothing there but the naked wood exposed. Now he's going to send out a message to them, and he's telling them now what they're to do at a time like this. He says first in verse 8, he says, "...lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth." He says something now that's unusual, They are to lament. And now I'll move on down. Verse 9, "...the meal offering and drink offering are cut off from the house of the Lord." In other words, they're not able to make an offering at all. "...and the priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn." Now, here is something that's very interesting, and all through here... You find this same thing said, "...the drunkard is to mourn, and the priests are to mourn." In other words, the entire economy is affected by this. And then he goes on, and before I deal with this, let me read two or three more verses here. We believe, therefore, because of a statement like this, that the prophet Joel is in Jerusalem. He's speaking here to the priests that minister in the house of the Lord. And that's mentioned several times here. Now, he says, verse 10, "...the field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the grain is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languish, no olive oil, and no grapes, and no grain." In other words, the three staple crops that they had are now destroyed, and they're called upon, "...the land is to mourn." You see... The land and the people go together. The Mosaic law was not only given to a people, it was given to a land. And the land and the people are very closely intertwined. Now, he says in verse 11, he's speaking now to another group. He spoke to the drunkards, he spoke to the priests, he speaks now to the farmers. "...Be ye ashamed, O ye farmers." Wail, O ye vine dressers! Now those that have vineyards for the wheat and for the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished, the vine is dried up, the fig tree languishes, the pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree. Now the apple tree is the orange. Oranges are indigenous to that country. Even all the trees of the field are withered because joy is withered away from the sons of man. Now, he says here, something else there to do. Gird yourselves. And now, something else. And lament, ye priests, wail, ye ministers of the altar. Come lie all night in sackcloth, ye ministers of my God, for the meal offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Now, you can't perform your function, because there's nothing that you got to use for your offering. And God makes it clear it wasn't the ritual that was important. It was the hearts of these people. Now he's doing something that he had not done before. When God gave the law, he gave to these people seven feasts days, day. And he made it clear to them he didn't want them to come before him with a long face. He said he wanted them to come to his house rejoicing. And that the joy would be in their hearts. And have you noticed that in our churches and the meeting of Christians today are not generally a very joyful occasion? I'm even rebuked for telling funny stories. At least I think they're funny. Sometimes I see a lot of the saints just sit there and not even crack a smile. I wish they would. I think it'd do them good. But there's no joy today. And. There's no joy then. Now, why is God for the first time telling his people, I want you to lament, I want you in sackcloth and ashes, I want you to mourn? Before, he didn't want that. He told them, I want you to come before me with joy. The reason now is, is because of sin in the nation. And today, the reason that there's so lack of joy, my, I tell you, the world is sure working hard today. The music has to be loud and fast. The jokes have to be dirty. They even get a laugh in a nightclub today. And even in our churches, it's almost sinful to laugh out loud. Oh, my friend, where's our joy today? It's gone because of sin, and God won't let us have joy. And he's saying to these people, come before me now with your mourning. I don't like it, but you're sinful, and I want to see your repentance." My, how the church finds itself in the same position today that these people were in in that particular day. And this was just the beginning. And the plague has come. It has absolutely destroyed the economy of the land, and they're in the midst of a great famine in that land. And they are to mourn before God, going sackcloth and ashes. God doesn't want it, but they're sinners now. And that's the only way they can come to God. Verse 14, now, he says here, and this is about the seventh thing he suggested for them to do, sanctify a fast. Now, God had never asked them to do that before. You see, God gave to them feast days. He never gave them a fast day. And it was not until they plunged into sin And now the one sin he mentions that was destroying the nation was drunkenness. It was robbing people of their normal thinking, making alcoholics of them. And they were not able to make right judgments. Sanctify a fast, he says. Then the eighth thing, call a solemn assembly. In other words, come together. And God wanted them to come together and rejoice in His presence. But He says, this one is to be a solemn assembly. And here, the ninth thing, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord. And that's the time to go to church. By the way, during World War II, two men that were rather godless men that belonged to all different kinds of clubs, drinking clubs, most of them are. And so these Two men, very good friends, they met one day at church. And one said to the other, said, well, I didn't know that you went to church. And other says, well, I didn't know that you did either. And he said, well, I don't go to church. This is my first day. But I got a boy over there fighting in this war. I thought it was about time I got to church. May I say to you, friends, that in times of great trouble, it drives people to God. Now, he says here that the inhabitants of the land are to come now, not up to one of the feast days, but now a fast day, to the house of the Lord your God. And now, the tenth and last thing, cry unto the Lord. Cry unto the Lord. And why? Because God is merciful. God is gracious. God wants to forgive. Our God is a wonderful God, you see. And they were to come to him, and he would hear and answer their prayer if they came in time of difficulty. Now, having just given them the warning, and these are injunctions, these are the things they are to do if they want the blessing of God upon them. Now he moves from this judgment of the locusts in a masterly way, as most of the prophets did. But I know of nothing to compare to Joel here. He now moves from the local situation way down to the end of the age to what? He says, verse 15, Alas for the day. What day are you talking about, Joel? Listen to him. For the day of the Lord is at hand, and as a destruction from the Almighty shall it come. Now, as there have been many little models, little adumbrations of that which is coming in the future, the local plague was a sort of a day of the Lord. It was a warning. It was a picture of it. And it was that which should have alerted the people. But now he's going to tell them about something in the future. Now, that which is coming in the future... The thing that had been promised David was a kingdom. And actually, David would be raised up to rule over that kingdom. And there'd be peace on the earth. And war would cease. Now, all the prophets pick that up. But they also pick up what Joel is saying here. The day of the Lord is coming. And Joel is going to explain what the day of the Lord is. Now, the day of the Lord is in contrast to the other days that are mentioned in the Scripture. You and I are living today in what is called, in Scripture, Man's Day. It began with Nebuchadnezzar, the times of the Gentiles. The Lord Jesus labeled it that. And that Jerusalem during that period would be trodden down till the times of the Gentiles would be fulfilled. Now... Man's day. We're living in man's day. Man is the one makes the judgments today. The appeal is not made to God. We appeal to the Supreme Court. But then no appeal made to God. And this nation has forgotten God altogether. They think it's just a word to swear by today, a word to blaspheme. Now what is man's day? Now I'm going to turn to a statement of Dr. Chafer, in his Theology on Doctrine. And I'd like to read this because it's very important to understand what man's day is. Man's day, he says, this theme, obscured at times by translators, is referred to but once in the New Testament, namely 1 Corinthians four three, which reads, "...but with me it's a very small thing." that I should be judged of you are of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. Now, in this passage here, the phrase man's judgment is really a reference to human opinion current in this age, which might properly and literally be translated man's day. That's the end of the quotation. Now, you and I are living in man's day. The day of man, believe me, humanism abounds today. Man can solve the problems of the world today. And what has man done? He's got it in an awful mess right now. And every new politician that comes along, he's got the answer. Well, they don't have the answer. Men cannot solve the problems of this world. And I understand that there's been some talk back in the cloakrooms of our own government and in the chancelleries of the great nations of the world that actually man cannot solve the problems of the world today. All right? We're living in man's day. Now, the Scripture speaks of another day that is coming, and that is the day when Christ comes to take His church out of the world, and all believers stand before Him. You find that Paul in 1 Corinthians First chapter, verse 7 says this, "...so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ." What is that day? Well, the day that He comes to take His church out, and the church comes before the judgment seat of Christ. My life verse is Philippians 1.6, being confident of this very thing, that he that hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, the day of Jesus Christ is that day that he takes you and me out of the world. He's going to keep us until that day. Then we'll appear before him to see whether we receive a reward or not. That is the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. The day of Christ. Now the New Testament speaks about the day of the Lord, and we have a very unfortunate translation again in Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, verse two. He says that ye be not soon shaken in mind or trouble. That is, our gathering together unto Him at the rapture. They were afraid they'd miss the rapture. You know that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Now, the word Christ is not the word there. It is the word Lord. The day of the Lord is at hand. Now, he's saying to the believers, you're not going to go through the day of the Lord. Now, the Scripture makes it very clear, and Joel is the one that will define it for us, and I'll wait till we get to it. But he's going to say that the day of the Lord is darkness and gloominess, and it's a difficult day. You see, the viewpoint was that they would enter immediately into the kingdom and be a breeze and be no problem at all. And he says now, the day of the Lord begins at night. And again, I refer you to the fact that that is consistent with the Hebrew method In Genesis, God started out by saying the evening and the morning were the first day, evening and morning were the second day, evening and the morning were the third day. Now you have these different days that you see. And the day of the Lord begins with darkness, and he'll make it clear what it is. It's the great tribulation period, this locust plague that has come, the Four bands of the locusts, like the four horsemen of the apocalypse that ride in the great tribulation period. Now, he is saying that it'll open with that. And then it includes the coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. And then you enter into the sunshine of his presence when the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in his wings. Now, that was the Old Testament hope. That was the thing that the Old Testament taught. Therefore, this plague of locusts was, in a very real sense, a miniature day of the Lord. And the plague was an adumbration of the great tribulation that is coming upon the earth. You see how important it is, friends, to study all of the Bible. Some man wrote me when we were back in Isaiah, and I referred to the day of the Lord. And I made the statement then. It began in darkness. Isaiah doesn't deal with it like that at all. Because Joel had written long before Isaiah. And the people were acquainted with what he was talking about when he mentioned the day of the Lord. Now, this man went on to explain to me what he thought the day of the Lord was. And I was rather amused. He wrote several pages and gave Scripture after Scripture he never gave one verse from Joel, and I watch for that. You see, apparently doesn't even know that Joel is the very keys, the first of the writing prophets. Now, you can't say the day of the Lord is something other than what Joel says. It'll have to fit into the program here. The other prophets that came after him, why, this was used so many times, and very candidly, it occurs... I think, tell the truth, about 75 times in the entire Bible. And it occurs five times, and that day occurs one time in this particular book. Therefore, what we have here is a reference to the day of the Lord, and you're going to find that all of the prophets have a great deal to say about the day of the Lord. That day of the Lord that is coming upon the earth. And I think this is very important, friends, for us to note that. And we need to recognize that the day of the Lord is a technical term. There is man's day, the day of man. We're living in that day now. The day of Christ is coming when he'll take the church out. Then the day of the Lord begins with the great tribulation period. And after all, we label the days of the week with different names, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and so on? And can't God label these different periods of time if He wants to? And this is not something some man thought of, and I certainly would not have thought of it. This is here in the Word of God that we're looking at, and it's important to understand that. Now, I read again verse 15, and I want to move on from that because it's very important. And I ought to say that the day of the Lord is not the Lord's day that is mentioned in Revelation. The Lord's day is the first day of the week, as I think is very clear from the New Testament. But a great many try to say the day of the Lord and the Lord's day are the same, just because you have the two words. Well, that to me is ridiculous, because after all, there is a difference between a chestnut horse and a horse chestnut. Just because you've got the same two words, you turn them around, you've got something altogether different. And one, you've got a nut, and the other, you've got a horse. So that it's just a matter of turning the words around, and because you have that doesn't mean they're the same here. Now, listen, he goes on now, still talking about this plague of locusts. He says, Is not the food cut off before our eyes? Yea, joy and gladness from the house of our God. No more joy and gladness in the house of God. And I think that one of the characteristics today is I've had the privilege in the past few years of my ministry of speaking all across this country and the great pulpits of this country and practically all of the great Bible conferences. And there's something I've noted and I've checked with other speakers that have a much wider ministry than I do And they all agree with me. In fact, they've noted it, that there is a sadness today in congregations when they come together, whether it's in a conference or whether in a church. Now, I have found in many places that I go at the first service, there is an air of expectancy. You can feel it. Their air is charged with it. But there's no note of gladness. And one man who's with the FBI down in Florida He says, I've been watching your method. And I don't think I have a method, but he says, I do. He says, I've noted that you get up before a congregation and you slide very quietly and slowly into a funny story to get people in a good humor. And I said, you've noted that? And he said, yes. And he said, I think I know why you do it. He's the FBI, and I sure wouldn't want that fellow following me around. But anyway, he said, I think you're doing it because of the fact that there is a low level of joy in the congregations today. And I said, you're exactly right. I said, you've noted something that many of us have noted now for a long time. That joy was gone at that time. And today we have everything, and there's no joy in our services. Now, verse 17, the seed is rotten under their clod. You see, the grain couldn't even come up. Why? Because these locusts, they just gnawed it off right even with the ground. The garners are laid desolate. That is, you can't fill up the granary. The barns are broken down, for the grain is withered. How do the beasts groan? The herds of cattle are perplexed, because they have no pasture. Yea, the flocks of sheep are made desolate. You see, a great famine has come to this land. Now, listen to him, O Lord, to thee will I cry, for the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame hath burned all the trees of the field. Now, I call this a scorched policy, but it was the locusts, you see. They are the ones, just as if the ground had been burnt off. And verse 20, the beasts of the field cry also unto thee, for the rivers of waters are dried up. "...and the fire hath devoured the pastures of the wilderness." Now, you see, this is a very terrible, treacherous time in even the animal world. Both the animals that are in the barnyard and the animals that are out yonder in the forest, the wild animals, are all being affected by this. It is a judgment that has touched all life in that land in that day. And it becomes a picture of a day that's coming. Now, he's going to open next time in chapter 2, and this brings us to chapter 2. He's making it clear that this is the prelude to the day of the Lord, that this is just a little adumbration, just a little miniature, a little picture of that which is yet to come. And he begins the next chapter with, Blow the trumpet in Zion. We're going to see the meaning of that. And today, my feeling is that, as we teach the Word of God. And that's one of the words that's used for evangelize. Terukh is one of the words for preaching today. It actually means to blow a trumpet. And I think that we need to sound an alarm today to this nation. I make no apology for doing it. So until next time, may God richly bless you, my beloved.